Well, we finish our um, four-week series on money and possessions this morning. And uh, next Sunday, the Noonans will be here, as Annie said, um, and I will be not here next Sunday, and part of the week after, we'll be going to see Anne's family. Um, but for this morning, uh, we take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. That's page 812 if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. Page 812, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. I want to start with a joke again this morning. A visiting preacher was uh, preaching at a small country church, and uh, when he finished the message, um, they didn't have an offering plate to take the love offering for the preacher, and so he took Alpha's hat and they passed that around. And the hat made its way around the congregation, and it got back to him, and it was still empty. And, and they knew it, and he knew it. And so he closed in prayer, and he said, God, Thank you that I got my hat back from this congregation. <laughs> well, I'm very grateful that CBC is not that kind of congregation. We are a generous congregation. I think we have a reputation for our generosity. And so the purpose of this series on, on money and possessions has been in many ways to encourage us and to challenge us to excel in that generosity more and more. Let me remind you again, as I did four Sundays ago before Greg preached, of why I thought it was worth spending a month, a whole month, on this topic. I've actually been excited to be preaching on this topic, and it's not because I get a percentage of any additional funds that come, on, come in as a result of these sermons, but rather, this topic has always been one that I'm very passionate about on a personal level. And I don't know when this insanity started, but... It really came to full bloom, as I said several weeks ago, when I spent three years in the country of Hungary, because it was there that I got perspective on my own financial life. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I lived there on about $300 a month, plus a room, a room and um, transportation. There was also less advertising there. There was less on the shelves of the stores. Life was just simpler. Life was less materialistic. And, and at the end of that time, as my American friends and I traveled home and we were comparing notes, we were reflecting with our, uh, you know, we're getting on the plane with our two suitcases, which contained everything that we had brought over and had had with us for the time that we were there. And, and as we were reflecting back, we came to fully appreciate that we had actually been happier with less. Our lives had been less cluttered, they'd been more free, they had been more about people and less about stuff. And we had been regularly humbled by the hospitality of poor villagers who would joyfully serve you their prized chicken, which might have been the only meat that they had to eat for the whole month. And we came to realize with the help uh, from other Christian brothers and sisters from Hungary and other countries that we'd gotten to know, that generally speaking, America has a huge, huge spiritual problem with our possessions, generally speaking. Money is a monstrous idol for us. In fact, it's so big that we've lost all perspective and we've become blinded to the fact that we no longer own the vast quantity of stuff that we possess, but rather that stuff owns us. And I knew that when I came home that I would have to preach about this to alert 
us to the spiritual crisis that I know I didn't see clearly before I'd gone overseas, before I'd had an opportunity to step out of my own culture for a while and to gain some perspective. But there's another reason that I've been excited to be preaching on this topic, and that's because I personally have needed to hear these messages again. I find myself getting caught up again in American consumerism, just like everyone else. And, and to be honest, it, it's not making me happy. It's not um, giving me the joy I'm seeking. And so I, like all the rest of us, need perspective on these things as God's people who are called to something different. And so if we as a church are, are aspiring to be a community of people whom God powerfully uses, a, a community who gives the world a taste of what Jesus like, or Jesus is like, if, if we aspire to be a community of people who, who through our, our life together, give the world a taste now of what Jesus' kingdom is and, and what it will be when it fully comes, then this is going to have to be reflected in our economic lives as well as our relational and our spiritual lives. And that's uh, the point of today's passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that God's Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a church that Paul had started in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. The Corinthian church had loads of problems, as you know if you've read the letter of 1 Corinthians. And, and so Paul wrote this letter largely to address this whole host of problems. And so as we look at this one particular passage in 1 Corinthians today, I want to ask three questions. I want us to ask three questions about this passage. First, what was the situation in the church that prompted Paul to write this part of his letter? So what was the situation in the church? Second, what does Paul say was wrong with that situation? And what does Paul tell them to do to correct it? And then third, what is Paul's reason or rationale for giving the correction that he gives? Paul doesn't just say, do it because I told you to. He always gives a reason. He gives a rationale. So first, what's the situation in Corinth going on here? Well, to answer this question, let's put ourselves in the shoes of a financially struggling member of the congregation Paul is writing to. There were no church buildings back then. People met in homes, and, and there wasn't much of a middle class either. Most people were either the haves or they were the have-nots. And the really rich ones were the ones who owned homes which were large enough for churches to meet in because they didn't have church buildings. So as a financially struggling member of the church in Corinth, as a have-not, each week you would leave your impoverished neighborhood and you would go to church in one of these large mansions of one of the wealthy members of your congregation. This opulent home would have a banquet hall fully staffed with servants. There uh, would be a worship service in this banquet hall and then there would be a potluck meal. They called it a love feast. And in conjunction with this meal, you would celebrate communion together. Now, you, as this not-so-well-off member of the congregation, leave, or live really close to the bone. And when you eat at home in your cramped tenement house, your meal is maybe some bread and some water or maybe a little bowl of beans or lentils or something like that. And so this is all you have to bring to the potluck. As you show up at the grand front door in, in your shabby clothes and you take your place in the sumptuous banquet hall, you bring, you know, your lentils or you bring your bit of bread. 
Now, the rich brother in whose home your church meets and some of his friends are used to eating sumptuous fare. They're, they're used to expensive wines and rare delicacies, you know, caviar and filet mignon kind of stuff. Rich food and lots of it. And, and so at the potluck, this is what they're eating. They're at their own exclusive table, evidently. They're feasting and they're drinking and they're laughing and they're having a great time. They're being waited on hand and foot by their servants. And you and the other working class folks and, and the other servants are, are off at another table and you're eating your, your crusty old bread together and there isn't much to go around because truth be told, some of you can't afford to bring anything. And they call this a love feast. They call it the Lord's Supper, but you call it really humiliating. In today's world, you'd find another church, right? You'd find a church on your side of the tracks with your sort of folk. But in first century Corinth, there weren't any other churches. And so fortunately, in a way, believers back then were forced to work through the new realities of the kingdom of God, which our many options today let us just avoid. Well, this is a situation that, that Paul has gotten wind of in the Corinthian churches. And in reply, he writes our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. And so our, question, our second question is, what does Paul have to say about this situation? What's wrong and, and what should it, how should it be corrected? Well, in a nutshell, Paul has nothing good to say. I mean, look at the way he starts. I lost my page here. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's how he begins. And, and the whole passage is dripping with sarcasm. He's incensed. He's disgusted, particularly with the rich people in the Corinthian church. Paul says in verse 22 that by their actions, these wealthy folks are despising the church of God. They're humiliating those who have nothing. But more than that, Paul says in verse 27, they're sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the Lord's Supper that they claim to be celebrating speaks of Christ's body. And the church is also Christ's body, the one body that, that Christ died for to bring together as brothers and sisters those who, who are now equals through the gospel. And when these rich folks are, are flaunting their wealth and they're putting the financial status before the cross of Jesus and they're allowing their society's divisions between the haves and the have-nots to continue in the church, then Paul recognizes that they're tearing apart the body of Christ and they're sinning against Jesus. They're going completely against the grain of the coming kingdom of God. And this sin is so heinous, Paul states, that God has been disciplining them. Verse 30, causing many of them to get sick and some of them even to die. And so Paul calls them to repent. And he says in verses 33 to 34, here's what I want you to do. Make everyone equally welcome. Be generous. Share all of your food together as brothers and sisters in the same family. And if you're so hungry that you need to pig out, then do that at home before the service so that you don't humiliate someone who can't afford your kind or quality of food when you come together. That's basically the scenario that we have here and how Paul addresses it. 
He also says in, right in the middle of this passage in verses 28 to 29, verses that many of us know well, he says, we ought to examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, I grew up hearing those words regularly at communion, and I had no idea what context they were given in. Um, and so to me, they made communion a, a serious and a somber affair. Before I took communion, I figured I needed to take time. I needed to be quiet. I needed to remember that I was a sinner. I needed to, to go over my past week mentally and, and confess every sin that I could think of. I thought I should feel sad and, and remorseful at communion because it was because of these sins, my sins, that, that Jesus had had to die. And I thought that if I didn't go through this mental exercise, that I was being disrespectful to God. And, and God might even punish me for it. And so there was a lot of pressure at communion. You know, you, you came in and you saw communion laid out in front and your head kind of went down a little bit and your spirit went down a little bit because you needed to do serious business with God. You needed to prepare yourself. That was the tradition I was brought up in. And um, I didn't realize at that time that there was more to this picture, which is communion, and that there were other perspectives on communion within the body of Christ. I didn't realize that in much of the New Testament, communion was a party. It was a love feast, as it's sometimes put in the New Testament. It was a celebration of God's love for us, celebrating the new life that we have together in Christ. I, I didn't realize at that time that the word communion itself suggests love and intimacy, not guilt and judgment. I didn't realize that the word Eucharist that some tra uh, traditions use to describe this meal actually means Thanksgiving in Greek. And so it has been over the years a healing and a worshipful experience for me as I've begun to realize that communion is much more than I'd known it to be from my tradition growing up. Now I'm not saying that there aren't times for us to be sober and reflective and, and repentant at communion. I'm just saying that, that this perspective alone isn't the full or the balanced New Testament perspective. And when we read verses 28 and 29 in context, these, these uh, verses about examining yourself before you eat, we, we realize in context that Paul isn't saying we must always individually soberly confess all of our sins before we partake but rather Paul is calling us as a group to make sure that our relationships are right with our brothers and sisters with whom we're sharing the meal and more specifically that Paul is calling us to check if we've forgotten check whether we've forgotten that the ground is level at the foot of the cross that's what the Corinthians had forgotten because whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're highborn or whether we're lowborn, we're all equally brothers and sisters as we sit around the communion table. And so we better treat each other that way. That's what Paul's getting at. And that brings us to the third question that we want to ask of this passage, and that is, what is Paul's rationale for this correction that he makes to the Corinthian church? 
Well, Paul's rationale, um, which are the well-known communion words of verses 23 to 26, point us straight to the cross of Christ. Paul says, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, he said, this is my body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink it in remembrance of me, right? We know those well-known words. That's Paul's rationale. A certain medieval monk announced that he would be preaching the next Sunday evening on the love of God. And so the next Sunday, as the shadows fell and the light light seemed to, or ceased to come in through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered in the darkness of the altar and the monk lit a candle and he carried it over to the crucifix which was hanging there. And first of all, he illumined the crown of thorns. Then he illumined the, uh, the wounded hands. And then finally, he illumined the mark of the spear wound. And in the hush that fell, he, he blew out the candle and he left the chancel. There was nothing else to say. Paul, in effect, is preaching that same sermon here. The reason Paul gives the Corinthian believers to be generous, to to treat one another with love and, and with equality and with unity, even in regard to their finances, is found on the cross, which we celebrate at communion. Paul says, in effect, take a look at Jesus on the cross body broken, blood poured out. See there on the cross how much you are in need of that grace. Look at what your sins have done to him, but look also at how much he's done for you. Look at how much he loves you. Look at the cross and see God's grand, lavish generosity. Look at a God who loves you so much, who who is so beside himself in love for you that God the Son couldn't help but go to the cross and God the Father couldn't help but give up even his most precious possession, his own Son, so that you could come back to him and be reconciled to him. Look at the cross, Paul says. That's his rationale. On August 16, 1987, Northwest Flight 225 crashed just after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 people. One person survived that crash. It was a four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. News accounts say that when the rescuers uh, found Cecilia, they didn't believe at first that she had actually been on the plane. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia must have been a passenger in one of the cars there on the highway that the plane had crashed onto. But later, when they checked the flight register, they confirmed that Cecilia had, in fact, been on that demolished plane. And as they pieced together what had happened, investigators realized that Cecilia had survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Shikan, had unbuckled her own seatbelt, had gotten down on her knees in front of her daughter, had wrapped her arms around her, and refused to let her go. That's God's parent heart. That's the impulse of lavish, generous love which just can't 
let you go. Even if it means enduring the brokenness and brutality of death on a cross. And therefore, Paul says, if in communion you are celebrating a God who has been so generously loving to you like that, how in the world can you turn around and make yourself out to be better than a brother or sister by failing to share your food with them? So stepping back now, I hope you can see the connection that Paul makes between communion and between how we relate to our possessions and our money. It's all about God's loving generosity and ours as well. So let me ask you a question. If, if Paul is so concerned about the rich sharing what they had with the poor because God had invited them both to eat at the same table where they were both undeserving recipients of God's lavish generosity in Christ. If, if Paul was so concerned about this in a church service at the communion table, do you think that Paul would be happy if we walked out of church and we checked our generosity at the door and we went back to our old selfish, stingy ways the other six days of the week? Well, of course not. Rather, in Paul's mind and in the New Testament, how we treat one another in worship and at the communion table becomes a paradigm and a pattern for how we treat each other seven days a week. It's a paradigm of life in the kingdom of God. Let me read you some words from the theologian Daniel Migliori, who I think sums this up really well. He writes about communion. He says, As a joyful, hopeful meal, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of a new humanity. Christians cannot eat and drink at this table where all are welcomed and none goes hungry or thirsty and share this bread and wine while refusing to share their daily bread and wine with the millions of hungry people around the world. And I'd add, especially if those hungry are their own brothers and sisters in Christ. Migliore continues, let the bread and the wine that symbolize Christ's sharing of life and love with us also be shared by us with all who are hungry and thirsty. I think he's captured well the heart of what's driving Paul in this passage. So we're right back to where Greg began this series four weeks ago. Do you remember what he said? He, he talked about our generous love on a horizontal axis, which is to mirror and to imitate God's generous love, which comes to us on a vertical axis, as it's expressed to us in Jesus Christ. God has been so generous so loving to us, and the only thing God asks of us in return is that he says, I want you to imitate me. Join in my love and my generosity. Share it with one another. That's how the world will see that my love is real. That's how my kingdom will become tangible in you and among you and through you in this world. So what does that generosity look like? Well, it looks like a 10-year-old boy a number of years ago who walked up to the counter of a um, soda shop and climbed onto the stool. And he caught the eye of the harried waitress and he asked, how much is an ice cream sundae? 
And she said, 50 cents. And so the boy dug into his pockets and he pulled out a fistful of change and he began counting it as the waitress waited impatiently. After all, she had other important customers to wait on. And, and then the boy squinted up at the waitress and he said, how much is a plain dish of ice cream? And uh, the waitress sighed and she rolled her eyes. 35 cents, she said. And again, the boy counted his coins and, and at last he said, I'll have the dish of plain ice cream, please. And he put a quarter and he put two nickels on the counter. And the waitress took the coin, she brought the ice cream, and she went off to wait on other people. And about 10 minutes later, she came back and she found the ice cream dish empty, the, the stool was empty, the boy was gone, and she picked up the dish, and then she swallowed hard. Because there on the counter next to the wet spot where the bowl had been, were two nickels and five pennies. The boy had had enough for the Sunday, but he'd gone with the plain ice cream so that he could leave her a tip. What does generosity look like? It looks like the young dot-com successfuls of the past decade. Jeff Skold, who was a vice president of strategic planning and analysis for eBay, asked, out there in Silicon Valley, or rather he said, out there in Silicon Valley, you see a lot of um, young folks who all of a sudden have a fair bit of money. And some of them have a real desire to give back to the world, but it's different from your traditional philanthropy. Ken Blanchard, uh, co-author of the book, How to Make Serious Money, or How to Make, yeah, How to Make Serious Money for both you and your company, gives an example of this new philanthropy. He says, in his company, he says, we tithe 10% of our profit, which last year was $320,000. We divide it among all of our employees to give away. The lowest paid, paid employee gets $1,000 to give away, and the highest paid gets $3,500, and there's everything in between. He says, we gave to 160 charities last, guy, last year, and a guy, in shipping came up to me, he says, with tears in his eyes and said, I got a chance to give $1,000 to my parish to buy robes for the choir. He had become a local hero. What does generosity look like? It looks like an 87-year-old Christian woman named Osolia McCarty who did one thing all of her life, laundry. She's now famous for it, or at least she's famous for what she did with 150 of the $250,000 that she had saved by washing laundry for wealthy bankers and merchants in her hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. For decades, she earned 50 cents a load, which was a week's worth of one family's laundry. But when she finally laid down her old-fashioned laundry board, she never liked those newfangled electric machines. Ms. McCartney decided to ask her banker how much money she had stowed away over all those years. And the figure astounded her, and it got her to thinking. She thought, I had more than I could use in the bank. And I can't take anything away from me here at the end of my life. And so I thought it best to give some child a chance to give an education. 
And so to the astonishment of school officials, this soft-spoken, never-married laundry woman from a not-so-posh part of town gave $150,000 to the nearby University of Southern Mississippi to help African-American young people attend college. The first recipient was 18-year-old Stephanie Bullock, a freshman at USM, who invited Ms. McCartney to her 1999 graduation ceremony. And when reporters asked the old lady why she didn't use her money on herself, she just told them, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I know, I've tried it. Well, four whole weeks on the topic of money. We made it. As a closing challenge, let me leave you with one more story from Eugene Peterson. It's found in his book, Run With the Horses. Peterson tells about how he once saw a family of birds teaching their young to fly. These young swallows were perched on a dead branch which stretched out over a lake, and one adult swallow got alongside of the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them until one fell off. And somewhere between the branch and the water, four feet below, the, the wings started working, and that fledgling was off on its own in flight. Then the second one. The third one was not to be bullied, though. At, at the last possible moment, its grip on the branch uh, loosened just enough that it, it uh, fell downward, and, and then it tightened again, bulldog tenacious, holding onto that branch. The parent was without sentiment, though. It, it started pecking at the desperately clinging talons of that little bird. And eventually it became more painful for the poor chick to hang on than to, to let go and risk the insecurities of flying. And so the grip was released and the, the inexperienced wings began pumping and the board took off in flight. Because you see, the mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. Peterson continues, birds have feet, they can walk. Birds have talons, they can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. Then Peterson says, giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some of us try desperately to hold on to ourselves, to, to live for ourselves. We look so desperately, uh, I'm sorry, we look so bedraggled and, and, and pathetic doing it. Hanging on to, to the dead branch of a bank account for dear life afraid to risk ourselves on the untried wings of giving. We don't think we can live generously because we've never tried. But the sooner we start, the better. For we are going to have to give up our lives finally. And the longer we wait, the less time we have for the soaring and swooping life of grace. Amen. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for Jesus, who though he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto with talons on a dead branch. But he made himself nothing, soaring and swooping down, taking on the very nature of a servant. God, thank you that by that sacrifice, that life and death, you taught us what you are really like. And thank you even more that you taught us what it's like to be fully human. I pray that you'd free us up in faith to live as fully human ones, to live into this life of grace, to not only receive it, but to turn around, to give it away, to take on our full majestic identity and being as your people, exhibiting the generosity and love that you have created us for and which you have first demonstrated for us. May we be that kind of people so the world can see what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to close with the benediction. Let's take just a moment to be silent as the benediction comes on the screen, and then we'll read it together. Amen. We don't have a benediction on the screen, so I'm going to send you out with one. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Go in that peace and blessing.